Well, why don't we get started again? Before we look at persecution of these new believers, let me give you some more passages. There's there's several of them, some of the clearest ones in terms of not only Israel's conversion, but the conversion basically of Gentiles as well. We read uh, the Deuteronomy passage, and we've got to read it again. Why don't you look up the Deuteronomy 30 again, 5 and 6, Eric, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, Hanada, Ezekiel 36, and start with verse 24, and back to Mark, look up Joel 2, Jim, Ezekiel 39, Start verse 28, and 28 for you too, Mark, start with verse 28. These are all passages that refer to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit amongst the nation of Israel, and ultimately these have their fulfillment at this time during this seven-year period of time, particularly not only like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are written during the time frame of the, the exile, but others as well. So start with Deuteronomy 35 and 6. And if you remember, this is written before Israel is even a nation. And I should have mentioned, by the way, jot down Leviticus 26, because Leviticus 26 parallels those passages that we looked at in Deuteronomy. And Leviticus is written to that first generation. So the first generation had an outline of their history, and then Deuteronomy is to the second generation. It had an outline of Jewish future history or eschatology. So Deuteronomy is to the second generation, and remember, it predicts tribulation. It predicts the coming of a exile, Messiah, etc. You got it? Leave it. The Lord your God will bring you in the land which your father possessed, and you shall possess, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your father. Moreover, the Lord your God will serve in part of you to love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul. Has that ever been fulfilled in the history of Israel? Never. Never. And notice, a circumcision of the heart is the Old Testament way of describing regeneration. And they're going to love the Lord their God with all of their hearts. This is Deuteronomy, way back. Well, it's interesting that they, they've already, they haven't even been in the land, but they've already been out of the land and then back in the land. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that your father is possessed in. Right. Like you're, okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of their history is right there. All their future. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's reconciliation. That's fellowship. That's regenerating work such that you have illumination of God's word. 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know from the least of them to the greatest of them. They've never had a national conversion described in this way. Keep reading. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, Jeremiah 31 is a description of the new covenant. They've never experienced the new covenant. This is it. Forgiveness of sins. Ezekiel 36. 
24 and 27. You got it, Renata? For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your land. Okay, there's regathering. We looked at that last time. Keep reading. Mm-hmm. I will sprinkle clean, clean water. Pardon me. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. That's forgiveness of sin. I will cleanse you from all the impurities and from all you, your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Okay, that's regeneration and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's deadness. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. Okay. Indwelling presence, Holy Spirit. Joel 2, 28 and 29. Mark. It will come after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. And old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Okay. A universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, saw a partial fulfillment of this, but it was never totally fulfilled. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 2, he talks about physical phenomenon that never took place on the day of Pentecost. This is for Israel. This is part of the new covenant. Joel 2, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a universal basis. In the Old Testament, only prophets, only kings, only certain... Special individuals had an indwelling or an overpowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Here, this is universal. Your young men will see visions, male, female, women. Women get an indwelling presence here. Ezekiel 39, 28 and 29. Jim, you got that one? Then they will know that I am the Lord because I made them go into exile among the nation and then gather them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. Okay, there's regathering. And I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Okay, in an Old Testament context, this is different. This is miraculous. This is universal, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there's other passages. You can jot down Zechariah 12, 10, and, and others as well. So there's going to be a massive conversion, particularly, and these pertain to Israel, but Gentiles are going to be involved based on that Revelation 7-9 passage, but particularly the nation of Israel. Last one is an example. Ezekiel was a prophet. He was talking to the people, but at the time he was telling the people, the people they, were just, they had just come back from it, right? Mm, no, they're still in exile in Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Well... Most of them, it just went over their heads, I'm sure. But if they had any spiritual sensitivity, it gave them the assurance that God is not done with us in spite of our captivity, our exile. And it should click that this is discipline for idolatry. And throughout their history, God has maintained even a remnant, even during some of these times as well. But during that seven-year period, during the tribulation, Severe persecution. Daniel 7.25, one of the Old Testament passages that predicts it. And he, this is a prince, will speak out against the Most High. So he's anti-God and wear down the saints. Persecution. Context of this is 
that seven-year period. Two Jews. Yep. The saints. Daniel's writing to Jews. Mm -hmm. Writing to Jews. So we're down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. He's going to make drastic changes in world affairs, and they will be given into his hand. They're, They're going to be under his dominion and his pressing oppression. For a time, and here's the Old Testament way of describing three and a half years. For a time, singular, in the Hebrew, there's a specific plural that is dual, which refers to two. There's two different kinds of plurals in the Hebrew. One refers to more than one, referring to two, and another one that is more than one, kind of indefinite in terms of maybe many more. It's a dual, so a time, times... So you have three and half a time, three and a half. And by the way, the book of Revelation picks up that same phrase. So there's persecution. The only positive thing during the tribulation is this worldwide revival. Most of the believers during that time will die. Most of them will be martyred. Some will survive because God has a plan for those survivors. We'll talk about that in a moment. So persecution. Some will die from the cataclysms, but most of them will die at the hands of enemies, at the hands of persecution. I'd like to look at a couple of passages, I think very important events in uh, Jewish time frame and history that I think are worthy of looking at because we won't look at them except in this context. We may touch on them when we talk about the tribulation, but... We were talking about persecution during the tribulation period, and I wanted to look at, first of all, Revelation chapter 12, and what I see is a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, so we'll take a look at both those passages. One of them, Revelation 12, if you remember we talked about massive conversions, lots of conversions during this tribulation period. And the most significant ones pertain to the nation of Israel. God raises up the two prophets. God raises up 144,000. And I see their their ministry is primarily evangelistic. And they have a worldwide outreach to the nations. And in that same Revelation chapter 7 passage, we have a just a little note that indicates... Because of the context and the close proximity with 144,000, it doesn't state it explicitly, but more than likely, the result of their ministry are those that are described from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And then we talked about the persecution that believers will experience in general, and I wanted to focus on persecution on Israel particularly, because we were looking at Jewish eschatology. And in chapter 12, let's look at a couple of verses here. Well, actually several verses. This passage begins a, what I see, kind of a new emphasis in describing the seven-year period of time. Now, not exclusively, but in general, from about chapter 6 through 11, I think the emphasis is a description of major events and particularly major judgments They'll take place during the Great Tribulation. Now, in chapter 12 through essentially 12 and 13, but you might even extend it to the end, 
the emphasis seems to shift to personalities or personages or major, what you might describe as major players during the Great Tribulation, particularly chapters 12 and 13, and there are several of them. The first one is this great sign in verse 1, and a great sign appeared. The word sign usually in our understanding is a symbol. John uses the word the Greek word that translates sign in other places. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, it's not explained here, but from this context and from other contexts, this is, I think, a picture or a symbol of Israel. In other words, Israel is this woman. And there's all kinds of interpretations. I don't want to get into all the different views on it, but I think the best view is this woman is Israel. So Israel, and another reason it's Israel, because it's first. In other words, this is the primary emphasis of the Great Tribulation. It's dealing with this woman. And then verse 2, and she was with child. There's the second major personage. And again, it's kind of cryptic or not clear, And then it says, she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. I think the imagery here, here we have a second personage, and if Israel is the woman, then the child is probably that seed that's described all the way in Genesis 3, 15, and eventuates into the seed that is the one that is going to deal with the issue of evil. And she's pregnant, and then verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, etc. Now we have a description of this dragon, this dragon. In fact, this one is interpreted for us in verse 9. So you skip down to verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So you have... The dragon is Satan himself. That one is interpreted, so there's no question on that one. So we have three major personages that are going to have a place and a part in this tribulation period. Israel, this male child, and if you read verse 5, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now that interprets for us the child. And that would be Jesus himself. Now, another thing I like to say when I'm looking at these little descriptions here, they're a little bit like probably all of you have a shoebox that you have just collected lots of photographs of your children or whatever, or even your own family. And someday you're going to kind of organize them in in an album. You're going to put them maybe chronologically, you know, babyhood, teenage years, etc., But right now, they're just in this shoebox, kind of all mixed up. And it's almost like John is just pulling out of this shoebox, and he pulls different pictures, and they give different perspectives on these personages, particularly Jesus. Because we have a lot of different things here. We have the birth. We have the ruling over the nation. So he pulls out a photo, full maturity, end-of-the-age picture of Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and then the child is caught up to God and to his throne. He picks up another picture out of the shoebox, and this is a picture of ascension. So it's not necessarily chronological. It's just these little snapshots or little pictures of this male child. And I think that's true of uh, some of the other descriptions as well. 
But anyway, so we have these three major personages, the woman, the male child, the dragon, Israel, Christ, and uh, Satan himself. And a lot is going to be devoted to those three. Jesus actually is the one that is participating in implementing or bringing down judgment. Israel, this is the time that God is going to bring them into a saving relationship. And everything that's destructive is is partly from the hand of, of Satan himself. Jim, do you have a... Well, the, the, two, the order of the two events in verse 5 seem to be reversed. So. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's... They're just like, he's pulling out a snapshot, and this one is this, picks up another one. They're not, they're not in the album yet. They're not, they're not chronological. That makes sense? That, that's the way I, I kind of see how he's doing it. And what he's, you know, what he's doing, he's just giving these little snapshots. He's not saying this is the order of them. He's just giving you enough that, oh, okay, that has to be Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And he does enough with the woman as well to say, well, this is Israel, mm-hmm. and this is where Jesus comes. He's from the line that even precedes even Israel, but eventually he's Jewish, he comes from the nation of Israel, he's the promised Messiah. Now, what I wanted to focus on, you have to understand all of that background to see in verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels wage war. So there's always this spiritual conflict. This is kind of another little snapshot. And by the way, here's a fourth group of personages. There's going to be a lot of angelic action in the tribulation and behind the scenes, overtly and invisibly both. And here is spiritual warfare that has gone on for since the garden. But now it's going to be more overt and more explicit and more evident during this seven-year period of time. So angelic creatures, there's a, there's a fourth group of personages, you might say. And this war, and then it describes the dragon. And then if you skip down in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come, or Christ, for the accuser or brethren has been thrown down, and who accuses them before our God day and night. So it kind of gives the final conclusion here. Here's a, the last snapshot is the conquest of the Messiah. Now, that's kind of a heavenly picture. I heard, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven, verse 7, and there was war in heaven, but now... It's going to shift the scene to earth. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. There's persecution. Mm -hmm. And not just persecution, but I think Jesus in Matthew 24 is going to tie this persecution to an event that we have clear chronological indication. But let's look at Revelation, then we'll skip to Matthew's account. So the dragon, it appears during the tribulation, is going to be confined to earth. He's going to be cast out of heaven. This is why this period of time is so intense and so destructive and so full of turmoil is Satan knows that his hour is nearly closing and he needs to do as much damage, I guess, as he envisions here. 
But verse 14, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a, and here's that little cryptic phrase from Daniel, a time and times and half a time. The woman is going to be protected for these three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. Now that probably goes back to verse 9 where it identifies the dragon is the serpent of old. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. What do you think that phrase is an allusion to? Probably Gentiles, yeah. Because if Jews are in view here, probably Gentile converts. Mm-hmm. So here's an allusion to the overwhelming be us. <laughs> martyrdom of many, many Gentiles. Well, when you say us, you're saying fellow believers, yes, not, I mean, not yeah. including yourself. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I understood. Okay, so he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, these are believers devoted to the word of God, devoted to Jesus Christ. This also explains what's going on in terms of a lot of martyrdom, a lot of destruction of, of believers, a lot of persecution. So it's going to spill over. But enough Jewish people are going to be protected. Some of them will die in the early part, and I would say some of them will probably die during the second three and a half, but he's going to maintain at least a remnant and protect them. So there's the revelation description, and if you turn to Matthew's account, I think Jesus ties it down. 24. 24. I see where he begins the Olivet Discourse beginning in 3 through... 14, I think he's describing what he says in verse 8. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. I see the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and I'm going to kind of give you an outline of this later on when we look at the Olivet Discourse in, in more summary, I guess you could say, overall. But I take that phrase to refer to the probably the first three and a half years, which extends all the way to verse 14. And then 15 is very key because he ties the time frame to what Daniel predicts in Daniel 9.27. Remember at the beginning, the prince enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel, with Daniel's people. And then he does something very significant. And we'll come back and look at what he does there. But what I want you to notice is not so much this abomination. We'll look at that again. But therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, go back to Daniel and study that passage. It's in the middle. Mm -hmm. And he's going to desecrate the temple. And if you put all the passages together, he's going to proclaim himself to be God himself in the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. But notice this. Then... Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, these are Jewish people. He's addressing Jewish people in the Olivet Discourse. Mm-hmm. The church does not exist. 
at this time in the life of Christ. This is three days before his crucifixion. He's preparing the disciples for the end of the age or eschatology. He's giving them a seminar here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are with child. In other words, this is going to be a terrible time. This is going to be the worst period of time. In fact, he says, verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. There's never in history been a period so terrible as this last three and a half years. So 15 is at the middle, and he's describing the last part. And he's talking about Jewish people fleeing. And I think that is parallel with the passage we just read in Revelation chapter 12. Does that make sense? So, great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So it's going to be so terrible, it's inconceivable. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, not for the church, the elect, and I think he's talking about those new believers, not just Israel, but probably others, those days shall be cut short. So I see the description, and then he goes on and describes more of the conditions there, beginning in verse 23, leading up to the second coming. So I see verses 15 through 26 as the second half of this terrible period of time. And one of the things that Israel has to do is flee. They flee Jerusalem. So they're going to be swept out. One of the points to make here is Israel is regathered, but there's also after that regathering and conversion of many Jewish people, they're going to be cast out of the land again. And this is by Antichrist himself. They are to flee, get out of town, leave Judea to the mountains. Now, some believe that it's Petra where they end up or other places outside of the land, outside of Israel. Petra's on the other side of the Jordan, and that's a possibility and probably a likely place. Mountainous fits the description here. But anyway, regardless, this is part of the persecution. It's going to intensify to the point that The Jews are going to be scattered once again. And that's why when it talks about a regathering in the description in verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That would include certainly Israel, but it would include the converts as well. And I think... Taking Revelation and Matthew 24 together as parallel, I think you can put all those pieces together. Does that make sense? So that's a little detail concerning the persecution. It's going to be the most intense in the last three and a half years, such that even Israel is expelled from the land. And it's in that period of time when we talk about Gentiles, those that believe in Jesus Christ you'll have more martyrdoms in that period of time than other area. So in verse 31, it's the elect, do those include Gentile believers? I think it's broad enough that it might even, yeah, I think it might include, yeah, Gentile. Gentile converts. And it may, it's not clear when Old Testament saints are resurrected. Some believe with the rapture, and that's probably the better view. 
But at least this tribulation period of time, they're gathered with the second coming. And when it says the gathered from the what, the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, it may even include us as well as resurrected believers gathered. In other words, all resurrected believers as well, both Old Testament and New Testament, to enter into the kingdom with the Messiah. And we'll look at that later on some more. Mark. And what, the verses, what were the verses you were just now referring to? Verse 31, uh, Matthew 24, 31. Yeah, gathering his elect from the four winds from one end to the other. Okay, let's look at a couple of other passages that speak of that persecution. Let's do Isaiah's. Uh, is it your turn, Sheila? Isaiah 26. Vivian, Zechariah 13, 9. Eric, Zechariah 12, 3. And that'll be enough for that. Sheila, Isaiah 26, 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter your, and shut your, hide yourself as if it were for a little until nation passes. Okay, until this persecution, it has a time frame. Keep reading. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants. The earth will also disclose her blood. Okay, it's not clear, but if you tie that in with things like what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse and put together these other passages, it tells of a persecution. What were those verses again? That was Isaiah 26, 20, and 21. And then Zechariah 13, 8. Maybe you has got that one. 8, 8, Well, you can read both, yeah. Okay. It will come about in all the land because two parts in it will cut off and the third will be, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Okay. Those are the survivors of the tribulation. Two-thirds are going to die. And then verse 9. I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as test them as gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will, I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is mine. Okay, there, there is deliverance and that's physical deliverance. This is during tribulation. Specific numbers, in fact. Very interesting. And remember, Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. So this is after the destruction of the nation. And it also indicates the purpose of the tribulation in terms of Israel. It's, it's a time of purification, or at least one of the purposes. Okay, Zechariah 12, what do you, who's got it? You, you got it, okay. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Gathered against it, persecution particularly. Not explicit, but clear enough. Jerusalem, the home and the capital of Israel, a heavy stone, implying that people are going to come against it. Also implied in that is that God is going to preserve his people. Then there's going to be a final regathering. Hanada, why don't you look up Jeremiah 32? And I've got one of them in Matthew 24, what Jesus says, but 32, 37, a final regathering. This is at the second coming. Do you have it? Mm -hmm. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Now, I take that verse where it says they've already experienced his wrath and his great indignation. I think that's tribulation. 
And then they're going to be in a place of safety and dwell in safety. That's after the second coming. He's got to accomplish that. I think that is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So all Jews, in, in fact, those that have died are going to be regathered. Final regathering. And after a regathering, God's going to deal with the nations, with the oppressors. We're moving towards millennial kingdom. And some of these overlap and refer to the end of the tribulation and even into the millennial kingdom. Well, we can read that one. And the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them. These are enemies. Possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord. As There's one of the references to the land. As male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive. This is millennial. And will rule over their oppressors. That's during the millennial kingdom. Now they'll be converted. And they will rule righteously. They will rule under their Messiah. They will not become oppressors themselves. They will rule in the millennial kingdom over the nations. And that'll be their vindication. So God's going to turn the tables around. The oppressors will now be ruled by those that they oppressed, the nation of Israel. So that's Israel before the tribulation and Israel during the tribulation. Let's take a look at Israel after the tribulation. And I summarize this. First, there's going to be a resurrection. Now, before I mention a resurrection, I I need to mention, I, I think some of these passages, like that Zechariah 13, 8, and 9, there are some that enter into the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies. And I think this is also made clear in the Olivet Discourse. The Jewish people that survive the Great Tribulation enter into the Millennial Kingdom. Now, when we talk about the Millennial Kingdom, I'm going to add to this as well. I'm going to give some more detail because there's others that will enter into the Millennial Kingdom in mortal bodies. But there seems to be a resurrection of those that die. In fact, that Matthew 24:31, I think it includes them as well, a regathering of them. Resurrected believers, particularly Jewish believers, because the believers that have died need to participate. If they're genuine in the kingdom, they will participate in resurrected bodies. Those that enter into mortal bodies will have a different function and a different role, but they will enter into into the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies. Just keep that distinction. We'll expand upon that. So there's a resurrection that needs to take place. Jim. Um, I guess uh, it, it'll include Gentiles came, came to one. Yes. That can believe during the tribulation. Right. Yes. But we're talking primarily of Israel here. So Israel will experience resurrection. And there are specific passages that refer to Israel. There's other passages that indicate a broader resurrection. One of those is Isaiah 26, 19. You're dead, referring to Jews to the nation of Israel. Your dead will live. Corpses will rise. Is that how you pronounce it? You will lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. 
For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Resurrection. That's to Israel. Now, when we talk about Gentiles later on, we're going to show that Gentiles also will, will experience a resurrection. And there'll be Gentiles that are in the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies. This is also in the Alabet Discourse. But this passage pertains to Jews. We also have, for example, referring to resurrection, Daniel chapter 12. Okay, Mark, Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and Okay, resurrection. And the context, I think, is primarily Jewish, Jewish context. Those are the clearest passages referring to resurrection. There's going to be a final judgment. Now, this is not the ultimate judgment. This is a final judgment for Israel. And the stage of this, staging of this judgment is for the millennial kingdom. In other words, it's to decide amongst the people of the tribulation who enter and who do not enter. And I think primarily Jews are in view in some of these passages. So the results of the judgment is either entrance or exclusion. And let's look at Ezekiel 20, Jim. Ezekiel 20, 35-38. And while Jim's looking that up, I think that Matthew chapter 25, this is Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 25, first 30 verses pertains to Israel. I'll give you a summary of that later. But for now, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) But you said uh, 20... Verses 25. Yes, for you, Ezekiel 20, 35, 38. You got it? Okay. Uh, and I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter the judgment with you face to face. As I enter into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of Egypt, so I will enter the judgment with you, declares the Lord. And I shall make you pass under the rod, shall bring you in bond. And I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so there's going to be a future purging. There are going to be some Jewish people that don't trust in Messiah. They will not enter into the land, into the temple. In fact, they're going to be excluded from the land. He's going to enter into judgment. This is... In the context of the second coming, that's part of what Jesus will accomplish in the second coming. He's going to bring judgment, and it's going to be specific to the nation of Israel. This Ezekiel passage pertains to that. Now, it's going to extend to Gentiles as well, but there's a distinction made between the Jew and his judgment, and I think the Ezekiel 20 pertains to Israel. In Matthew chapter 25, the first 30 verses... Two parables, a parable of the ten virgins. I think it's dealing with the same thing. Some of them are going to be prepared, some of them are not. Those that are not prepared, the preparedness is the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think the imagery is they don't have oil. They don't have enough oil. They have some illumination, but they never 
prepared well enough. Now, don't stretch the imagery too far here, but I think the 10 that do not are not regenerated and they are excluded. The ones with the oil who have the lamps burning, who have experienced regeneration in a dwelling of the Holy Spirit, they will enter in. They're separated out. The second parable, and these are Jews. I think they these are Jewish people in view in the first part of Matthew 25. The second parable, the parable of the talents, I think that pertains to participation and rewards, if you will, in the kingdom. I think it is Jewish as well. Those that have invested, if you will, in spiritual things, they will be given more. I think it's a picture of Jewish rewards, much like the analogy that we have for the church. And there'll be some that I think are part of the kingdom, but they will not experience rewards. The one that did not invest the one talent. And dependent on the investment, in other words, those that invested more will be blessed more. Those that neglected investment will experience loss. The third parable of the sheep and the goats, that one is crystal clear. In fact, do you have that? you have Matthew 25? Yes, sir. Read verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's the millennial throne of the Messiah. Keep reading. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, the nations. First two parables, Israel. Third parable, the nations. And the imagery is that of separating sheep from goats. The sheep belong to him. He's the shepherd. The goats are outside. And if you read verse 46, seems to picture eternal damnation, basically, and as well as eternal salvation or eternal inheritance there. Last verse there. So there's a separating of the Jews. There's a separating of the Gentiles. So you see in, that? I'm sorry. In, in uh, the parable of the talents, um, the, the one wicked slave, he's thrown into the outer darkness, but that's different from the eternal punishment of 46. I saved. think so. Okay. Just, just trying to figure Yeah, and that's that. there's disagreement in commentators, even within yeah. conservative circles. Mm-hmm. But it seems to fit better within the idea that, because there's other verses that indicate in terms of the church, and I think there's an analogy here. Uh, I think Christians that are genuinely born again, every one of them will be part of the kingdom. But not everyone will have positions where they will have uh, opportunity to serve and rewards. Rewards, mm-hmm. yeah. You can suffer loss, mm-hmm. and I think the analogy carries over in terms of Israel as well. Makes sense. So back in the Ezekiel, what happens to the the rebels? The rebel. I mean, are they eliminated? No, I, I think they're lost. I mean, lost, but they still live eternally. Hmm? Do they still live? No. It doesn't tell us, but I think they're cast into the lake of fire. Either that or they're reserved to that final great white throne judgment. It's not clear to me. So initially, only believers? Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. Not just those even that were non-believers? No. Only believers enter the kingdom. And there's two classes. There's those in mortal bodies and those that are in resurrected bodies. And it, it accounts for all people, basically. We're trying to account for all people. So we have the judgment, and I think the judgment is on the timeline there is on the, at the second coming time frame. 
the conversions continue throughout the tribulation, probably till the very end, and the persecution continues as well, starting early and going through the rest of the tribulation period. And especially, I put it kind of in the second half, especially the second half. And there's going to be participation in the kingdom and par- particularly a reigning with Messiah. So first of all, in the kingdom, so there, we've placed Jewish people, in fact, the majority of the nation in the millennial kingdom, some in resurrected bodies, some in mortal bodies. Both will reign to some extent. And we have specific passages that speak of Christ, obviously. And I think it's, is it Jim's turn? Do you want to look up Psalm 2.6? Israel is going to rule. In fact, that passage that we looked at where they will rule, the, the, the ones that oppress them, they will rule over. In other words, oppressing nations. You want to do that one, Sheila? Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. And Jim asked about David. The Davidic covenant is not specific, but there's other verses like this one that speak of David ruling. But this makes it clear. And there's also Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Vivian, you got the Ezekiel passage? In fact, why don't you look up the Jeremiah 39 passage as well? 39, Jeremiah 30. Jim, Psalm 2, 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. Okay, that's Messiah. In fact, that whole psalm, you could read that whole psalm, it's a messianic psalm. And the specific verse is verse 6, where it speaks of installing his king. That's messianic, and it's also millennial. And there's many other passages that speak of Christ ruling. In fact, Mark, why don't you look up Dan 2.40, Daniel 2.44. And you remember, this is the vision of the kingdom that will rule the earth, Gentile kingdoms. And then there's going to be a final kingdom. And notice what it says in Daniel 2.44. Got it? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and will put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure for. That's a millennial kingdom that God sets up. Now, it doesn't specifically spell out Messiah, but it's the same kingdom that Messiah will rule over. This is, I think, what is referred to, we won't look it up, but you're familiar with Isaiah 9. Verse 6 speaks of the incarnation. Son shall be given, child, how does it go? Should have it memorized. And then verse 7, and the government shall be rest on his shoulders. That government is the millennial government. So that's messianic. Also, chapter 11 speaks of Christ as the messianic one that will reign. There's several. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah 33, if you want another one on Christ ruling, 15 through 17. Zechariah 9, 9 is another good one. In fact, Jim, why don't you look up that one as well? Zechariah 9, 9. And that Matt, you can include Matthew 25, 1 that uh, Eric read. There's many passages. Zechariah 9, 9 and probably 10 as well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a dove. 
even on a colt, the pole of the donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's messianic. In fact, Jesus partially fulfilled that. It's quoted in the Gospels as a fulfillment of Jesus Christ coming on a donkey. But obviously he didn't rule from sea to sea, right? So it kind of is a composite of first and second comings. And then you got Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. This is Israel, Sheila. The word that Isaiah the son of us saw concerning Jerusalem. Now it shall come at the mountain of the exalted people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the house of the God who will teach us his way, and we shall walk in this. For out of Zion he shall judge, but they shall beat, and their spears and nations shall not lift up sword. Did you notice? They're coming to the house of Judah. And from Judah they will receive the blessings that are spelled out in that passage. Israel is prominent. Israel is ruling over the nations. This is the kind of rule. It's a, it's a rulership of spreading the word, of giving out God's blessings. The nations still have to come to Israel. So Israel is going to be ruling in the kingdom. And David specifically, that's the one you got, what, Vivian? Um, you think I, got I got it. 34? And I will set over them one shepherd, my children, he will feed them. He will feed them himself. Okay, feed them himself. David will be resurrected. And he is their servant, David. Keep reading. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant will be prince among them. The Lord himself is ruler over the millennial kingdom. David is under him. So David is there. And then the Jeremiah 30 verse 9 is another one that indicates David specifically. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Raise up, resurrected. And it's in a context of millennium, millennial context. So Israel has a major part in the kingdom, reign in the kingdom. In fact... After the kingdom, I think the Old Testament doesn't make a distinction between the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. It kind of mixes it up. In fact, in Isaiah, I think 65 and other passages, it speaks of a recreated new heavens and a new earth. But when you get to the book of Revelation, the context seems to indicate that the new heavens and the new earth is a description of the eternal state. In the Old Testament, it seems to mix the two up. And it seems like one doesn't make a distinction. But I think the New Testament separates the two and makes a distinction. But in that context, I think this inheritance in Isaiah 66, this is one of the passages besides 65, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, this is the end of Isaiah, basically. This is their inheritance. And when it speaks of inheritance, it speaks of rest, and I think it's millennial, but it continues into the eternal state. And I think this passage is one that kind of looks at both together. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. New heavens and new earth. So I think Revelation 21 and the first part of 22 that describes the new heavens and the new earth is their inheritance, Israel. Now, obviously, we as part of the body of Christ are part there as well. But we join Israel. 
And I like to use the Old Testament passages, be, at least flash them up there, because these are Jewish. These, this is for Israel. There's New Testament counterparts as well. And the last thing here are covenants. Covenants. And what I'm getting at here is more the fulfillments of the covenants. And you can give me the first one after the Noahic is obviously Abrahamic. And the Abrahamic covenant is not completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land and probably never will until the millennial kingdom. The Abrahamic covenant deals with Israel blessing the nations, that passage that we read where all are coming to Jerusalem. Israel will bestow blessings upon the nations, so that is not fulfilled. The Abrahamic, that aspect of the Abrahamic is not fulfilled to the millennial kingdom. They're long range. I mentioned that when we talked about them. What's the next one? Abrahamic. I don't have Mosaic, because I think that was fulfilled in Christ. And the other one, the next one? one that's forgotten, Palestinian. That one pertains to the land. And again, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land. The Palestinian covenant is the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, and it assures that Israel will occupy all the land. Jim? On your uh, outline, you have their covenants fulfilled. That sounds like it should be their covenant, but it's not. Not fulfilled. Well, fulfilled in the future, I guess you their covenants will be fulfilled. Sorry about that. It's not clear. Right. Davidic. Davidic covenant spells out a messianic king, and it spells out David's rule. And then some of these other passages we look at, that is not fulfilled until David reigns in the millennial kingdom under Messiah. So all these covenants still have future fulfillments. And the last one, is what? New Covenant. Israel has not experienced the circumcision of the heart that's described. It has not experienced the regenerating work that is described in the New Covenant. Has not experienced the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We can summarize that with Israel's regeneration. That will not take place until the tribulation period. And some of the blessings of that regenerating work will not be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. And then all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled in terms of Israel. It will have the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Long range. And again, let me just remind you, these are contracts. Legally binding, God has bound himself to accomplish everything in those covenants. They have not totally been completed in terms of fulfillment. They await the millennial kingdom. Just kind of a summary of Israel's history in conclusion to Jewish eschatology. Genesis gives us the origin of Israel. And on a timeline from creation to 17, what was it, 1770-something, death of uh, Joseph. We have the emerging of Israel beginning with the book of Exodus, and that's a long history where God is establishing them as a nation. So it includes the Exodus, where the people experienced a common experience to bind them together, 
And after the Exodus, he gave them the law, the Mosaic law, which is covenant or the document that binds them together by a constitution. And what remains is that God give them a common land. That doesn't happen until the book of Joshua. And you could even include judges there where they're being established in the land. So you have the emerging of Israel. And God intended to rule the earth through kings, through the nation of Israel. So we have an age of the kingdom, right around 1000 B.C. to 586. Kingdom collapses. Jewish people go into exile. The nation is destroyed. City is destroyed. Temple is destroyed. They have a brief return. You could say a partial restoration until the coming of Messiah. And I hope you're noticing that world history basically is the history of Israel. Everything fits in in that. The restoration is preparation for the coming of Messiah. Messiah offers the kingdom. Unfortunately, the Messiah was rejected. So we have dispersion of the nation of Israel, a partial hardening, Romans 11 and We have an ultimate restoration that is yet future, even from our time. And we have a millennial kingdom. And then we have eternity. That's world history. That's Jewish history. All the rest of world history fits into that. So obviously the church fits into this time of dispersion, the time of Israel's hardening. God is working a different work. But then he will return, remove the church, and then he will return to work with the nation of Israel. Got it? That's Jewish history and Jewish eschatology all on one slide. It's all of the Bible all on one slide. And the, the complaint that a lot of you know, Christians have is that it seems like you're minimizing the church. When, when you, I mean, when you lay out God's plan the way he lays it out, mm-hmm. that's usually what you hear back is. You're, you're really, we fit in. You're really, well, you, know, you know, they see where we fit in, but it's where well, you've really reduced us. We, we think we should be here, but it looks like... God's got a big picture, and we just get to be a part of it. Yeah, which is true. But yeah, yeah. How do you, I don't know? Just how do you, how do you deal with people in that sense that you got to humble yourself and realize right. that it's a blessing? You're a wild olive. That's right. <laughs> You've been drafted in. Yeah. Count your blessings. Yeah, we have no claims on God. Exactly. <laughs> we have no claims on God, but He's made provision for the Gentiles. Yeah. But it's through Israel. Okay. So yeah, treat the Jewish people nicely. <laughs> Absolutely. Hanada, why don't you close for us? And if you, you have you can have four minutes of prayer here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here to um, learn more and more from you. Thank you so much for Professor Ray. Thank you so much that you poured your spirit into him and gave him given him so much knowledge so that he can actually share with us. Um, really challenge us to have to seek, examine, you know, examine the word and really grow in it. So just be with us. Thank you so much for the love shown here today and um, letting us go out a little bit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for everything that you do for us on a uh, regular basis, Father God. Um, please continue to use us, continue to challenge us to see, to grow, and to continue to be literal, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name I pray and I say thank you for everything. Amen. Amen.